Father, we ask for your blessing on this word. Give us ears to hear and tender hearts. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would do what you were sent to this world to do. In the wonderful name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Well, the title of the message is Stolen Crowns. But I want to say something before we actually get in the message. And um, uh, in a couple of weeks, we'll be finishing up the discipleship class that I've been doing that started in mid-January. And I'll be, uh, the Lord willing, picking up another class like that in uh, the beginning of January again. And uh, so same design, same thing. So it's not a, uh, it'll be a re repeat. And uh, so I want to make it open to those who really want some deeper discipleship. And uh, uh, I'm not going to go through it all now. I just wanted to share it for you to begin to pray about. And I really would like to be able to open it up for men and women, not just for, for men. Um, but then I have a, another desire. What is right at the very core of this is to raise up preachers, preachers and teachers. It doesn't mean that that has to be what your call is. It's just open for discipleship and those who want a, want a deeper walk with Christ and just want to be a help with that. So pray about it, okay? Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to begin here, but then I'll be going a bunch of different places so you don't have to follow unless you want to. I won't wait for you uh, to catch up. But here I want to begin 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the verse 3 verses. Um, I'll be reading from the 1984 NIV. I hope you'll put up with a little of my foolishness, but you are already doing that. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promise you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, so your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion. Here we see Paul's heart, his love for the Corinthian church and, you know, his love for the church, period. He had a burden for the church, but what it is is this heart of God being revealed through this mere mortal, through this man, the heart of God. And... There's some wonderful thought that's here, and really as I dug into it deeper for this message, I saw some things in it that I thought were just uh, very beautiful and disturbing, though, at the same time. He begins with saying, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I'm jealous for you. The King James translated the idea of jealousy there as fear. I fear for you. And actually the Greek means to be frightened or alarmed. It's a lot stronger than what is being presented there. I am terrified for you. Why was he terrified? Because he saw something going on that he in one sense was feeling helpless to do anything about other than to speak and to pray. But he saw this thing happening and he was concerned, deeply concerned. For the last two Sundays, Pastor Jeff has been preaching on the second coming. Well... I'm going to preach on it again. And it's a, it's a huge subject. It's huge. So I'm going to deal in a different way on this. 
and deal with something I think is very important for these last moments of the last days that we need to understand. And as we're going to see from this here and other verses we begin to look at, we're going to see the problem of lies and that we live in a culture of lies and that we have been warned again and again and again by Jesus, by Paul, by Peter about the aspect of deception that will be there and we'll see in just a little bit where even the elect can be deceived. And so it's a dangerous world we are living in right now. And if I might say it like that, it is probably the most dangerous mankind has ever been in. The most deceptive. And yet most of the church isn't even understanding that. They don't even comprehend the world in which we live. And here's Paul saying, I am frightened for you. I am alarmed. I see what is going on. I see what's happening in the world. And I see how you are being sucked up into lies and you're not even comprehending the lies you're being sucked up into. So why was Paul jealous? Or why was he alarmed? Because they were on the verge of giving up their spiritual purity. So I'm going to try and say this in very polite ways because uh, children are present. But it's their purity that he's talking about. He's talking about a purity here that I think is extremely important for us to understand. Now, nobody comes to Christ for noble reasons. We all come because we're sinners in desperate need of a Savior or life is a mess, we're hoping he'll clean it up or whatever. We don't come out of noble reasons. That's the only way we can come because in the world we are fully, completely selfish and we can only come in that selfishness. But as we come to him in that selfishness, he begins to change us. So that is not then as time goes on the motive of why we serve him, but we start learning how to love him and then we serve him out of love. So it's a, a, a different thing that goes on as we mature in Christ and what it is when we come to Christ. And so we live these sensual, perverted, twisted messes of life. And guess what? We give up our purity and you give it up and you can never get it back, right? It's gone. The only thing that can be different is when we come to Christ that he can restore to us spiritually our purity that we can now become pure and holy. So he takes this, in essence, if I might say it like this, these prostitutes and purifies them and brings back their purity, brings them to a place of true purity. And then what is he telling them to do, in essence? To stay pure, keep yourself pure. Do not allow yourself to be defiled. And we're going to see something here that is really very scary. What's What's happening, if we could think of it like this, imagine you have this daughter that's coming into her teen years or maybe into adulthood, and you, you as a father are watching her, and you're seeing her go after this boy, and this boy you know is bad news. You know he has one agenda, what, to, what he wants out of that girl, and you're watching your daughter be seduced by this man, and you're warning her, and she goes, Daddy, I know what I'm doing. I'm grown up. I know what I'm doing. I can handle myself. No, you don't. Don't you see what you're doing? Don't you see where you're going? I don't see that, Dad. I think everything's okay. He's a nice boy. He loves me. And all the lies, all the deceptions that's coming, and Daddy is feeling utterly helpless to stop his daughter from going down this way that is going to be filled with all kinds of pain and sorrow and misery. And she will not listen. She is rebellious, will not change. And so she continues in this path. And so Paul said, I am jealous. I am alarmed over you. 
And he speaks of how Eve was deceived. He says, just as Eve was deceived. Same identical thing, but let's understand what this is here because there's something here a little stronger. You see, we have the word deceived. The King James Version says beguiled, but neither of those words are strong enough. The word itself in Greek means to be wholly or completely seduced. Eve was completely seduced. Completely seduced, but seduced by who? We have to understand who's doing the seducing her here. It's not just some boy trying to seduce a, a, a girl. It is the idea of the devil wanting to seduce you. And so it is more sinister and more evil, more diabolical than what we ever imagined because we don't think like that. We don't approach life in that particular way. And so he says, just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning. By the serpent's cunning. A snake, that's what the serpent is, a snake. Not something that is normally our best friends, right? We're not, I mean, some people like snakes, but I don't personally like them. You know, I'm, I'm preaching in uh, Wisconsin and uh, a, a series of meetings and I go into the church to have some time of prayer. It was a mid-afternoon type of thing and I open the door and a, and a snake falls right on my head. I mean, you know, and then it's slithering into the church. I'm going, if this isn't prophetic. I mean, so I'm out there chasing after the snake, trying to grab it before some find some place under the pew and throw it out, you know. Now, I know it wasn't a poisonous snake, but still, you know, that's what he's trying to do, slither his way into the church. Through what? The idea here is of sly, cunning, artful maliciousness. This enemy that has an agenda and he is so sly, so sweet-talking and the whole time he is this sinister evil that's out for one thing, to destroy you, to ruin you. That's all he wants. And we want to sit down and be good buddies with him. We think that the world's not that bad. You know, hey, I can, I can partake in a little of the world and it's not really that big a deal. And guess who's telling you that? It's not God. It's this very serpent that whispers in our ear, that's not that big a deal. It's not that big of a sin. It's not a problem. And so we end up, instead of listening to God and his word, we start listening to this voice that appeals to our flesh, appeals to our self-life, and we start listening to that as if that is going to produce some good in our life. And so he said that the serpent's cunning led Eve away. Here again, here is another way that we've got to understand the Greek behind this. Because this is really serious here. The King James Version says, instead of led astray, corrupted. That's a little bit better translation, but it's still not strong enough. Paul is using very strong language here. The Greek is to wither, to spoil, to ruin, to, to corrupt, to destroy. So here's this cunning of the devil that is coming for one purpose, to mutilate, to destroy, to ruin you and your life and everybody in your life that he can. Now, if you're not a Christian, then at this very moment you belong to the devil. Your spiritual father is the devil. And you've been taken captive at his will. You have believed his lies. For everyone here that's a true follower of Jesus, you have to understand you have an enemy of your soul and the enemy of your soul is coming after you because he wants you back. 
And why does he want you back so bad? Why is he after you? Because he hates God with this just raging hatred. And all the demons of hell hate God. And what do you do to an all-powerful being? You can't, you can't hurt him. You can't overcome him. There's no victory over him. So what do you do? You go after his heart. You go after the apple of his eye. You go after that which was created in his image, which is mankind. And he goes after that with every soul. He wants to somehow try and hurt God by not making us in God's image anymore, but by becoming people in the image of the devil. Having a character of the devil. Having a life ruled and defined by the devil. And so he's warning the church of this. You understand? He's not warning the world. The world's already been taken captive. He's warning the church. Why is he warning the church? Because he loves the people. He loves the people. He sees what is going on. He sees the danger that they are in. And how much more now in the day in which we live and the danger that is in our world now than what it was back then. He goes on to say, he wants to deceive you, corrupt you from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And uh, the King James uses simplicity. And, you know, I used to really think that was a, a good, a, a better translation than what the 1984 NIV there that referred to this uh, idea of pure devotion to Christ. But as I studied this, I'm going, you know, it's the NIV, 1984 NIV, that was more accurate. That was more keeping with the idea of seducement, of the giving up of purity. And so simplicity, that's a good idea because the devil really wants to try and get everything in our life so complicated, right? Some of you have, you know, you have a terrible time in your brain trying to have a, a simple walk with Jesus because it becomes all this junk about, about works and doing this thing and that thing. And, and so it does get complicated. So the simplicity is a, a very good thing in that way. But the idea here, keeping in the, in the context of it, is about the seducer of our souls coming after us, trying to ruin us and to take us away from our pure and sincere devotion to Christ. We are under attack. And if you don't know that, then you've not opened your eyes yet. You've not seen the reality of the world in which we live. You have not seen what's going on outside of your little world then. We're living in a culture of lies. That's just, that's the fact of it. It began in the garden, right? With the temptation, Adam and Eve gave in the terrible rebellion and that lie began right there in the garden. So strange that you have the, the, first, the first church, the first sanctuary there and, and lies getting into the midst of paradise, getting into the midst of the place where God would walk with Adam and Eve. The devil goes to church. The devil goes to church and he's going after church people. He's going after church kids. And how's he going to do it with lies? At the beginning of Matthew chapter 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21, Jesus ends up pointing out the stones, or excuse me, not Jesus, the disciples began pointing out the stones of the temple and the beauty of it. And, and Jesus goes and prophesies, says, not one stone will be left down upon another. And that had to freak them out. I freak out the disciples. So they waited until they got alone with Jesus. says, okay, tell us when will this destruction be and what will be the signs of your return? 
So Jesus answers those two questions in all three of those chapters. You know, what is going to be the sign of the destruction of, the, of, of uh, Israel? And what's going to be a sign of your second coming? And we have to be able to have enough discernment, which is not that hard to have, to just look at it and read it. If you question the reality of the difference, Luke 21 brings out so simply, this is the destruction of Jerusalem. This is the second coming. The wording is so clear, so obvious. And so he says in Matthew 24, verses 24 through 27, For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. See, I have told you ahead of time. So anyone who tells you, there he is, out in the desert, do not go out. Or there he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible, even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. What an interesting thought that's here. This is one of the times, one of the many times that Jesus, reward, Jesus uh, warns us about the idea of lies and deception that will come through other people. That will come through false prophets and come through false teachers. There is absolutely no way it's absolutely impossible to take this verse and have it referred to the destruction of Jerusalem that happened in 70 AD. There is absolutely no way. Because he says as lightning. He speaks of lightning. A second coming is as lightning. And how fast is lightning? Wham! There it is. In the twinkling of an eye, he'll come back for his church in the rapture of the church. It took Rome after Rome was driven out of Jerusalem by the zealots. It took Rome to gather their armies, which took a lot of time. And by the time they finally got to Jerusalem and laid siege to Jerusalem, it was over three months before they were able to breach the walls. When they breached the walls, the bloodbath of the Roman armies was unbelievable. Over a million Jews died in the siege of Jerusalem. But while that siege was going on, the very zealots that was trying to bring freedom from the Roman Empire were more brutal to their own people than the Romans were to them. Unbelievable. It didn't happen as lightning. It didn't happen as lightning. You understand there is absolutely no way this verse can refer to the destruction of Jerusalem. It's impossible. So is it possible to deceive the very elect? Now, if it wasn't possible, why would Jesus ask the question? I think that's a serious thing we have to ask. Why did he ask the question? And I'm going to let Scripture itself answer the question. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. The Spirit clearly says that in latter times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Now, you know, when you get people that don't believe that individuals can forfeit their salvation, that there's no backsliding, they have to do unbelievable somersaults. In this verse, a bunch of others. I'm not going to share them all. I'll just share another one before I move on. But they got to do all these somersaults to say nobody can lose their salvation. That is an absolute lie. An absolute lie. Here he's saying there are some that in the latter times will abandon the faith. That meant they had faith. That meant that they were saved by faith. 
That's what's going on here, that people can forsake the faith to go after lies. And what a strange thing to do. You know the truth. You know who Jesus is. You know what sin does, but then you turn your back on the Savior and you go back into the world. How often has that happened? And it is happening more and more and more. The problem is horrendous. And then 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Paul says, don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man doomed to destruction, the man of lawlessness, is a reference to the Antichrist. We have in our world an Antichrist spirit. It is the spirit of the world that comes through demonic sources. But there is a man that will be the embodiment of that that we refer to as the Antichrist. But what does he say? Don't let that day come upon you because there's going to be this time of a great rebellion. What is that word? That word in the Greek is, is actually the word apostasy. The King James Version translated as a great falling away, which I think is a much better way to translate it. But what this is, he says there will be a time where people desert the truth to go back to the enemy. This cannot be done by people that are not Christian. It can only be done by people who know the truth, and by knowing the truth, they abandon the truth to go back to a world of lies, to a life of lies. Now the thing is, is these lies that allure us, that draw us, they are out there everywhere. They are permeating our culture. They're permeating our media. They're permeating the airways. They are everywhere. They're on your, it's on your phone. The lies are abundant more than any other time in human history. That's the world in which we're facing and, you know, if we don't understand what we're facing, how are you going to live ready? How are you going to deal with the lies that are going to come against you, that are coming against you now? The lies that you see all the time. You drive down the, the expressway and you have billboards and all these things, these allurements everywhere. You can't even drive the expressway without it. All over there is these lies coming at us through media and all these various forms, and we fail to understand how utterly destructive they are, and so we downplay them. It's not that big a deal. It's not that dangerous. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 18, we're just told that those born of God do not practice sin. Those who truly walk with Jesus don't practice sin. Those who practice sin aren't walking with Jesus. But what, we have, what, we've, what have we done in this culture, this church culture in America of cheap grace, is we have went and downplayed the reality and the mandatory requirement of God that we walk holy with him. That's not about legalism. But it's about the reality that this holy God will not let anything unholy in his heaven. And if we're going to walk with him, and if we want to hear, well done, enter in, thou good and faithful servant, then we must walk in that holiness. And the only way we can walk in his holiness is we've got to walk in that place of intimate fellowship with him, because there's no other way that we can walk and be victorious and overcome the lies and the deception. To quote Matthew chapter 24 again, verses 10 through 13, Jesus said, At that time many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. So how can Christians be deceived? Many will turn away from the faith 
And what will they do? This is crazy. They will turn right around and begin to betray those that they were once fellowshipping with, those they once loved, just like Judas. That same spirit of Judas, in essence, in people, that they'll leave and they'll begin to attack, they'll go back into the world, and they'll, they'll begin to live out the very things and become the betrayer of those who are walking with Jesus. How can Christians be deceived? Well, maybe I need to ask another question first, is how do people backslide? And if you ask people that question... They'll give you all kinds of answers. Well, you know, drugs or this or that and give this whole list. And, and again and again, rarely do I ever hear a right answer. Rarely. Because there's only one reason why people backslide. Because they forsake their first love. The only reason people backslide is because they stop loving Jesus. And when we stop loving Jesus, there is absolutely nothing left to protect us from the world. Nothing. We've made ourselves vulnerable to this liar, this deceiver that wants to seduce us right into hell because we did not guard our hearts. We did not look at the greatest commandment as being the greatest commandment. So we gave ourselves to something else. And what does that mean? We became spiritual adulterers. Spiritual adulterers. And we allowed ourselves to be seduced away from the truth. just heard a couple of stories from a, a friend. This is their daughter that the story's coming from. So I know it's not like way down hearsay. This is that close. And she's in a Christian college, a big Christian college, a known Christian college. She's sitting in the cafeteria, and she is a believer, and she's eating lunch with a, uh, a guy that's a believer as well, so he does love Jesus, and he ends up saying that, well, I need to, to go to my room. I got homework I got I to gotta do, and so he ends up leaving her. A little bit later, he comes back, and he is shaken. I mean, it was obvious he was shaken, and she goes and says, what's wrong? He says, I went into my dorm room. And my two roommates were having sex with each other. Go to say something to the powers that be of the Christian college, and what do they do? They discipline that boy and not the other ones. They go and they say, well, you can't live on campus anymore. We're moving you off campus. That same school the same school, the same girl. She goes into her dorm room and there was this boy that was chasing after her. He is now in bed with her roommate. The sexual explosion in our Bible schools are insane. Another school, I know this firsthand from the pastor, another school, the homosexuality has gone crazy there. The pastor goes and, and, and has one of, his, one of the guys of his church that's a student there and uh, brings out the aspect of this homosexual activity that's going on. This boy, this young man goes to present it to the president and the president says, don't ever say anything about that ever to anybody. A gag order, don't say anything about that. 
Lies. Lies. And you know where those lies really came from? Let me take you back. I don't want to get too off on this, but you know where those lies came back? They came back a long time earlier because all those colleges were at one time Bible schools, which meant that they were not accredited. But they were able to be used for, you know, two to four years to get a good Bible education and understand. But somewhere along the line, they wanted to become numbered above them. Uh, uh, with the big boys. So they wanted to be accredited by the federal government. And when you get accredited by the federal government, then the government makes you do such things as what's going on. That one school I mentioned to you, the big one, professors are leaving left and right because the worldliness, the sin is running so rampant in the school. They say, this is just abandoned ship. This is the Titanic. It is going down. It may still be there as a school, but it will not any longer be a spiritual institution that is going to be for God. It may be a spiritual institution, but imagine what kind of kids are going to be produced out of there. That's going to be our next generation of pastors if Jesus doesn't come back. I'm preaching at a church in the New England states, and I somehow deal with the subject of fornication there. And there was this girl that was visiting the church, and she is furiously writing while I'm preaching. And she gave this note to the usher and says, give it to the preacher. And basically what it was, it was an attack against me because I was addressing the reality of sexual sins and that those who practice sins, such sins will not go to heaven. She was going to one of these schools to be a youth pastor. So the next generation of youth pastor that she's going to be, she's going to say sexual immorality is okay. They are lies that are creeping into the church. They are destroying the church. They are mutilating it, seducing it. And the church doesn't even understand, doesn't even pay attention. They want to keep it under gag orders because, well, that's not a popular thing. You see, there's a reason why I'm saying all this because we've got to understand the lies that are getting in and we can be in our little bubble and say, oh, no big deal, but there's a devil coming after you and coming after your children. It's the reality of it. And if we don't open our eyes and understand how we are to protect ourselves and our children and those we love, then we're not going to stand. Second Thessalonians Chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth, but have delighted in, in wickedness. So why do people embrace the strong delusion? Because they refuse to love the truth. They refuse to love the truth. But you know, here's the thing is we can't love the truth unless we love the truth in person. You understand? He is the truth. And unless we love Him, we're not going to love the truth. And if we don't love the truth, then we're not going to want the truth to define our lives. How much do you really love Jesus? For those of you that are really walking with Jesus, how much do you love Him? Do you want truth really defining your life? How many lies do you want in your life? How many lies do you want to embrace? And you, can, and you go and say, well, this many lies is okay, but that many isn't. So here's a bottle of water. 
I know I've given this illustration before. How many drops from the toilet is going to be acceptable to you and then drink this bottle of water? I mean, is five? Is it, that's, okay, just five. That, no more than five. I don't want any more than five because if five, well, then, then it's too dirty. And that's what we try to do. We try and say, I'll let, I'll let a little bit of wickedness, a little bit of compromise in my life, and it's not going to be that big a thing, but it defiles the whole thing. It defiles the life. It, it removes people from a place of right standing with God. And that's a very dangerous place to be in these days. How precious is your soul to you? How much do you really want to go to heaven? It says these people embrace this strong delusion because they refuse to love the truth and because they have delighted in wickedness. And so what do we have in our country? The explosion of the sodomy sins, right? All the LGBTQ and all the other letters you put behind it. It's irrelevant how many there are. But they all come from the same identical place. You know, it's absolutely insane how people believe in that that very diabolical movement, how they believe it. They've, they have taken it hook, line, and sinker, and they think that which is absolutely abnormal, that which is contrary to nature, that which is, is just is contrary to all that God is, and they think it's okay. It's crazy. Strong delusion. Now, be honest. Did you ever think that America would come to the place of believing what they believe now? Do you ever think it came to the place that they would embrace things that are absolute lies and contrary to all that Christ is, we have gotten here in a very short period of time, but there was a lot of groundwork that was being laid beforehand to bring us through that, through the whole hippie movement and the sexual revelation even before that, where all these things are being laid out to bring us to the point of where we are right now. Strong delusion. You know, some of the strong delusion we're going to face that is on the verge, and we've got to understand, technology is advancing so fast, and what we are, what we are facing in our technological age is going to be so integral to the coming of Christ and to the rising up of Antichrist that, it, you know, the, all the ideas we had in prior centuries of Christ's return in one sense is being blown out of the water because it could have never happened until such technology came into existence. A cashless society makes tremendous sense. Tremendous sense. I mean, just, just think of it. You have this way to go to your computer, and your computer turns on. You know, you go to your door, your door pops open. You want to go buy something. You just have the ability to go put everything in your cart. You walk out the door, and it reads everything that's in your cart. It's coming so fast, people don't even understand. A cashless society is just a little way off. And to the natural mind, it sounds great until we understand what's behind it further. Because you have something behind this that is coming up that should be actually having people terrified in this AI, artificial intelligence, terrifying stuff. So terrifying that Elon Musk, which has his hands right smack dab in the middle of all this, which is crazy that he'd say it, but he says he thinks that AI is more dangerous to mankind than nuclear weapons. Dangerous stuff which people don't understand on how this AI is going to get into every aspect of life and control everything. And guess what it's going to control? Get right down to the nitty-gritty of it. It is going to control 
the monetary system. Blockchain technology, if you have any knowledge of that, I can't explain it. I barely understand anything of it myself, but blockchain technology is integral to it, and it is all in place right now. And yet the church, we just go on our merry way thinking, no, nothing's there, no big deal. Are you going to be ready when that mark comes? I can't tell you what it is. I don't know what it is. But I believe when it comes, we'll know those who walk with him. But those who don't, it's a scary time. And you know, it's too late when this stuff starts really unfolding at such a fast pace. It is too late to try and get everything ready if you got yourself so, excuse me, so immersed in lies. And so God wants to bring the reality of the truth to us so that we become a people that walk in security because there is true security. There's eternal security in Christ, but it's only clinging to Him. Okay, it's only clinging to Him. There is no such thing as eternal security in this life apart from clinging to Him. You don't cling to Him, you're not eternally secure. Now, when you make heaven your home, you will have eternal security forever. Okay? That's awesome. But until that time, we have to be faithful to the end. We have to stand against the lies, and it might cost people their lives. It might cost them their possessions. It might cost them their jobs. How much are you willing to stand for the truth when lies are coming in, and then you and I become the enemies? Because when you look at the history of persecution... Usually the persecution doesn't come against the church because it's the church. They come against the church in kind of the back door saying they are detrimental to society. This group of people must be dealt with because they are harming our society. And that's exactly what they'll do with this. Exactly. The church will now be to them a hostile entity that's coming against the whole plans of Antichrist in this world. Why? Because they chose to believe lies, and by believing lies, God sent them strong delusion. Nobody will be deluded that wants to know the truth. But those who believe lies, the strong delusion, will come to them more and more and define them more and more. So how do we overcome? How do we stay right? By being lovers of the truth. That's serious stuff, more serious than you understand. You know, I know this, this church is very aggressive in trying to bring the Word of God and make the Word of God central to the life of the church, but that is, it's not just a Christian type of religious thing. If we don't know His Word, we're not going to stand. If we don't know His Word, we're not going to know how to stand. If we don't love His Word and let His Word define us, and not secular society, but we must want Him to define us and His Word. And it's only by that that we will be able to stand, that we'll be able to recognize lies when lies come. Amen. Do you understand how to recognize lies? Because they come against you on a nonstop basis. They come against you in your mind. They come against you with your eyes, with things that you see in your ears, with what you hear. Lies are everywhere. We are immersed in them, and we don't understand the extent of those lies because we don't really believe that our world has gotten that sinister. But it has. And we have to become lovers of the truth. Jesus is confronting the religious elite in John chapter 8. In verses 42 through 45, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and now am here. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? 
because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Now, you know what's scary with this? I mean, this is, to me, this, what Jesus is saying here is really scary. These were religious people extraordinaire. All right, they, they had the clothes, the religious clothes. I mean, expensive stuff. So this wasn't some cheap stuff that you get in the, in the, the uh, uh, eBay market type of thing. You're going to go on, this is expensive stuff. They have these this clothes and all the, 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 the shawls, the prayer shawl that they have and everything about it. They, they are people that were, were just diligent in trying to obey the law and obey everything of the rules. I mean, they looked so good religiously on the outside. If one of them came into our churches in this country, it wouldn't be long before they're sitting on the board. Because, man, they get just got, look at there, just religion is oozing from them. But Jesus says, you're of your father the devil, and the lust of your fathers you do. So, people in church can be deceived. Why are they deceived? Because they do not love the truth. Here is Jesus, truth in flesh and blood, bringing to them the reality of who he is and what he can do for them. And they refuse to believe him. And not just refuse to believe him. They, in their religious way of thinking, think that it was right to have him killed. I mean, you want to talk about some deception. That's some serious deception that they could justify it. But you see, it happens over a process of time. That people get to a place and begin to be so religious that they think everything's okay. Well, I was saved during the... Jesus movement that was a countercultural response to the hippie movement. And you know, in the, the church that I was in that was in revival, that's where Jesse got saved. I got saved in a park prior, but that was the first church I, I went to and stayed at for quite a few years till I went to Detroit and pastored a church, pioneered a church. But you know, at that time, you never heard about people that called themselves Christians living together outside of matrimony. It just wasn't there. It was just the church knew. People knew. These young people coming out of a life of drugs and the whole sexual revolution knew that that life, that sexual perversion, is absolutely 100% household to God. But now, all over, I mean, throughout the country, people think that they can be Christian and in pornography. They can think they can be Christian and in sexual sins. They think they can be Christian and live with people outside of marriage. That's called fornication. And the Bible says that no fornicator will ever inherit the kingdom of God. The only hope for the fornicator is to repent of fornication and surrender to Christ. But how many people are still in those lives? They go to church. I mean, it's unbelievable. Especially you get in the deeper, the deeper south you get, you get into the whole religious culture of the south, and you know what happens? All kinds of people claim they're born again, and they're in fornication, they're in homosexuality, they're in drugs and everything else, and they're or just they have no walk with God. But I prayed the prayer years ago, so I am okay. A deception that has come into the evangelical church and people don't take the time to say, is there any validity to their claims or does the Word of God speak directly against it? 
Those things would never have gotten a hold in the church unless the church became gullible to being seduced by the enemy. You understand how they have, that didn't happen out of nothing. There was that slow seducing. When I think of the temptation that happened in the garden with Eve, I do not think of it as a one-day thing or a couple-hour thing. There was the seducing. You don't have a person, a woman, that is perfect and pure seduced in a moment. Who knows? Was it weeks? Was it months? Was it years? The process of wearing her down every time the arguments were another way of trying to offset it? I pastored in this city, Detroit, for 12 years. And while I was pastoring in Detroit, people wanted to bring gambling to Michigan. And specifically, they wanted to bring it to Detroit. They wanted to bring it to downtown Detroit. They brought it up to a vote. It was it just the margin of, of defeat was humongous. Guess what? They brought it back again to vote. You see, they had the power. They had the money. They're trying to force this thing. They kept forcing it on the people. Seven times they brought this up before the people. Seven times. And each time they dealt with the last argument. So now the margin became less and less and less until that seventh time they barely got it passed. You see, that's how it works all the times. That's how it worked with Eve. Those lies, he'd keep dealing with one lie, and she'd respond to it. He'd come at her from this way, and then come at her from that way, and come at her from another way. The whole time seducing her and wearing her down with these arguments and these lies to bring her more and more away from the place of right standing with God. That's what's happened to the church and the compromise and the, all the, the perversion and evil that is going on in the church because we've let a little bit at a time get in and we tried to raise some arguments, but we had no determination to stand against it. And so those lies ended up getting a greater hold, a greater hold, until eventually people started giving over more and more and more. And so, guess what? I read earlier about the great falling away. We are in the great falling away. We are in it. And yet, how many people understand that? Jesus went and made this powerful point in John chapter 14, verses 15 through 18. He says, if you love me, you'll obey what I command. Who's he speaking to here? The church, his disciples, right? Why would you have to go to the disciples and tell them, if you love me, you'll obey what I command? Why? Because that thing is inside of us that we want to be Christian or right with God without having to do what is right, without having to love him. And so he is going to press this thought home five times in chapter 14 and 15. He says, if you love me, you'll obey me. And then one of the times he says it in the negative. He says, if you don't obey me, it's because you don't love me. So when you see the sin that goes on so many times in so many places, you have, you have this neon sign that is basically over the life that's saying, this one does not love God. Absolute evidence because the fruit is manifesting the reality of the life. The sin that is being practiced is revealing that that person doesn't love God because those who love him don't practice sin. Those who love him want to walk in holiness and purity, want to walk near to him because they have tasted of love so beautiful, so divine, that their heart aches for that. And even the, even the slight word or action or whatever it is breaks their heart because they want that nearness with Jesus. And holiness is never legalism. Holiness is always relationship. 
You want that nearness. You want closeness with him. You want to know him. And so if he repudes you with a slight word, you want it out of your life because he's the prize. You have finally come to the place to understand the prize. And you want that prize more than life itself. You want to be defined by that prize. You want to know him. And so Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey what I command, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor or another comforter to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. So Jesus is the truth. The Spirit is the truth. Why? Because there's one God that's revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Absolute truth is in God. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. What a beautiful portion of Scripture. What a beautiful portion of Scripture. But what does it all begin with? If you love me, you'll obey me. Just that simple. Just if you love me, you'll obey me. What is the devil always trying to do with us? I'm talking to us as Christians here, okay? What is the devil always trying to do? Somehow to get us to break some kind of commandment, to somehow go against God always trying to whisper those lies in our ear, bring something before us, somehow to go against what he want, what God wants. So he's undermining the rule of God in our life so that we will do what Eve did, touch what is forbidden, and not think that touching what is forbidden is that big a deal until you realize that a judgment has fallen then. And that's what happened to Adam and Eve. When they sinned, the judgment fell. Was there forgiveness? Well, yes. We have no evidence of it, though. There's not any evidence that Adam and Eve ever repented. We don't know. There was a sacrifice that happened because they were clothed with animal skins, so that means there was a sacrifice. The very first idea of sacrifice for atonement for sin was there, and that's how they were clothed. But no expression of repentance that I've ever seen in the Word of God that came from them. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 15. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. How interesting. Do we ever read that final verse that's in that little section? Do we ever read it? And understand what is really being said there? Because what he's telling us here is there's this narrow road and there's this broad road and watch out because there's false prophets going to try and deceive you for what purpose? To get you on that broad road. And so to use a modern kind of version of, of Pilgrim's Progress, imagine you're on this journey and you come to this place and evangelist meets you. An evangelist comes to you and he points out that on your right, there's this narrow road. And you look at this narrow road, and it's like super narrow. You know, you can't get any fast cars or anything else down there. It's like, it's, it, it appears really rough, and, and it's going into this, this woods that, boy, it just doesn't look really inviting. But you look to your left, and here is this beautiful super highway. 
I mean, it's beautiful. And you see these people rushing. Of course, you wonder, why is it only in one direction? But you don't even think about it because it's so beautiful. And you see this, this, this one car go by. It's an old Ford Pinto. And he has a pedal to the metal doing 45 miles an hour. And, you know, he's rushing along. And then in the fast lane, you find those that have the, the $3 million Bugatti that's going 250 miles an hour. And then on the side of the road, you have, you have the Amish guy in his buggy whipping his horse, trying to get that horse go faster. They're all going down this broad road. And they don't realize it's going to make a turn there. And it ends. It ends. And there is a bottomless pit. And if you look real closely, you'll not see any screech marks. No brakes are put on. They don't stop. They just go headlong. And so what does he tell us? Watch out for lies. Watch out for false prophets. Watch out. Because there's a hater of your soul that wants to seduce you, that wants to take you away from the truth and wants you to be back on that broad road to hell and doesn't want you walking in that narrow way. Because when you look at that narrow way, you may not see the end, but you start down it and eventually it opens up into a broad and beautiful land and the celestial city and him who sits on the throne is there waiting for us. Amen. Two roads, which one are you on? To go back to 2 Corinthians 11, but I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, so your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. You see, that, that devotion to Christ, that pure and sincere devotion, must be guarded. What was it before? What should it be now? But what was it in olden times? Women would guard their purity. It was extremely important, extremely important. How much more should our purity in Christ be important to us right now? that we want to be this chaste virgin right with God waiting for Him so that when He cracks heaven and He sounds that trumpet that we go up and we are with Him forever. Oh, we breathe our last and we know that like, like Stephen, He is standing there waiting for us. We are in such serious times. We're not to be afraid because we have the God that is absolute victor. There is no defeat. No Christian has to live a defeated life. No Christian has to live a defeated life. We live defeated lives because we choose to live defeated lives, because we do not choose to walk in the victory, because we do not cherish the purity that He has given us. We don't cherish in the devotion that He calls us to, this precious thing that He has called us out of the world and called us to be His own precious possession. Do you understand, if you are a Christian, you belong to Him. You are His. He guards over you like a jealous husband. He loves you, but He'll not rob you of your free will. He will not make you walk with Him. He'll warn you. He'll call you. He'll prepare you. He'll do everything for you, but He will not make you. You must want to walk that narrow path. You must want to walk in that purity before Him and to walk so circumspectly before Him that the world cannot accuse us of doing wrong, though they will, but they have no legitimate way to say that. 
Let me close with a final verse. Revelation chapter 3, verse 11. What's going on here is the Lord was calling John the Apostle to be his secretary. And he was to take dictation. And so the Lord was going to dictate to him seven letters. And those letters were to be sent to seven churches. Five of those churches he rebukes. Of the five, four of them he has something good to say, but he rebukes them. And it has these terrifying, this terrifying phrase that comes up a couple times, yet I hold this against you. It says, oh, you're doing a good job here, but I hold this against you. And if you don't deal with this, I'm going to take your candlestick away. I'll take your salvation away. Of the seven churches, there were two that he praised. And I want to look at something that he said to Philadelphia, the church of Philadelphia. To the church of Philadelphia, write, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. You see, the devil wants to steal your crown. He's out after your crown. He wants to do anything he can to try and rip that from you, to take that from you. He's a thief. That's all he is. He's a thief and a liar. And he wants to rob from you the preciousness of your salvation. To move you away from that place of loving Christ. And to allow yourself to become an idolater, an adulterer, going after other loves. And so Jesus is the one that said that. Don't let any man take your crown. Hold on to it with everything that's within you. Hold on to it tenaciously. Fight any devil you got to fight to hold on to that crown because it's too precious. It is more precious than you can imagine because it's as precious as the God that gives us the crowns. Father, we come before you now in the precious name of Jesus. Lord, you give us warnings because you love us so, so passionately, God. You warn us because, Lord, you really do want us home. You really do want us to be with you. It's this, this infinite love of God that has pursued us, chased after us, and then after you captured our hearts, that, Lord, you strive tenaciously to, to keep those hearts captured and protect us from all the lies and all the, the garbage and all the seduction of this world and of hell to try and take us away. But, Lord, just like with Hosea, and you commanded Hosea to go marry a prostitute because this marriage was to be a prophetic act, and what did he do? He married her and had a couple children, and... And she goes back to her prostitution. And then what did you tell him to do again? He says, go and buy her back. She's in the slave market now. Buy her back. Because, Lord, your love for us is so great. And you have warned us that these days would come. You warned us, Lord, that we could be wise that we could be those wise virgins ready, watching, Lord, prepared. God, I'm asking for a wise church, a wise people. I'm asking for those that may have been foolish in some areas of their life to understand the danger of what they're doing. 
been playing with sin, oh God, that they might get it out of their life and understand that they are being seduced and they would not allow that seduction in their life anymore. But Lord, if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, God, they have been seduced by hell and given over to it. Lord, I pray that you would call them to yourself, that you'd bring them to repentance, oh God. Help them to understand the wonder of love beyond anything they've ever known is waiting for them. The lover of their soul, their own creator, is calling them to themselves and wanting them to flee from the wrath to come. Lord, you do not want any to face your wrath. Lord, you did not create mankind to face wrath. You created us that we could know you and revel in you and enjoy you forever and ever. And God, your heart is aching and yearning. God, I'm praying for any that do not know you, that they would see the reality of your wonderful call and this tremendous gift of salvation that you're calling us to. There is no other way to escape the dangerous days we live in, oh God. It is through you and you alone Lord, I'm asking for some people that would get some wisdom right now this morning. The wisdom of what salvation is and that they would want to run home to you. That they would lay aside the foolishness of their own pride. God, that they lay aside their love of sin that has caused them nothing but pain and misery throughout the years of their life. And that they would want to run home to you, O oh God. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Would everybody please stand?